to say that Galileo is the father of modern science is to say that he made some kind of unique contribution, something unprecedented, that was the starting point of science as we know it. So what would that have been? What was that uniquely Galilean ingredient that made science appear out of thin air for the first time in human history? So we discussed this before. People have tried to pinpoint the, the answer to these questions in various ways, and I refuted uh, last time the main attempts, the mathematization of nature, empiricism, experimental methods. Those are key uh, tenets of uh, modern conceptual scientific method. And many people have tried to attribute them to Galileo. I argued basically last time that those things are all commonplace in Greek times, in fact. And so, however, the list goes on, of course. There are other things that Galileo was allegedly the first to do. So let's have a look at those. They also do not stand up to scrutiny, of course, is going to be my argument. Here's the first one. Galileo's greatness consists in bringing together abstract mathematics and abstract science with the concrete technology, the practical know-how of craftsmen, uh, workers in mechanical uh, fields. This is a common uh, claim, and let me give you some uh, quotes from various historians who expressed uh, this idea. Here is one quotation. Real science is born when, with the progress of technology, the experimental method of the craftsman overcomes the prejudice against manual work and is adopted by rationally trained university scholars. This is accomplished with Galileo. So let me. Here's another quote from saying this, expressing the same idea again from a very authoritative historical source. Galileo was able to bring together two once separate worlds that, from his time on, were destined to remain forever closely linked, namely the world of scientific research and that of technology. Here's another quote: Galileo may fruitfully be seen as the culmination point of a tradition in Archimedean thought, which by itself had run into a dead end. What enabled Galileo to overcome its limitations seems easily explicable upon considering Galileo's background in the arts and crafts. And uh, another one, okay, the last time now, I'm going to say the same point again from yet another famous historian. The separation between theory and practice imposed by the university professors of natural philosophy was repeatedly exposed as untenable. Of course, the greatest figure in this movement is Galileo. So, okay, four historians, they're all saying basically the same thing. Galileo himself, in fact, eagerly cultivated precisely this image that these historians have bought into. The very first words of Galileo's big uh, book on mechanics are devoted to extolling the importance of, for science of observing, as he says, every sort of instrument and machine in action at the famous arsenal of Venice. He praises the experiential knowledge of the truly expert, as he says, uh, workmen at, uh, at the arsenal. So Galileo, he loves these workers, craftsmen. Uh, he loves them in inverse proportion to how much he hates philosophers. So hands-on knowledge is much more, uh, has higher status in this conception of the world than uh, book knowledge or Aristotelian uh, uh, hair-splitting terminologies, such things. So, okay, it is true indeed that the universities were filled with these people, blockheads, who foolishly insisted on keeping intellectual work aloof from connections to the real world. And, for instance, let's take one indication of this. Uh, John Wallace went to Oxford University in 1632. At that time, uh, there was no one at the university who could teach him mathematics. As he says in his autobiography, for mathematics at that time with us were scarce looked upon as academical studies, but rather mechanical, as the business of traders, merchants, seamen, carpenters, surveyors of land and the like. That's John Wallace, who went on to become one of the leading mathematicians of the century. When he went to university, it was impossible to study mathematics at all as an academic subject. So it's very striking. That's indeed a very lamentable uh, state of affairs, to be sure. However, it would be a mistake to infer from this that Galileo made an innovative step, a unique contribution. For, in fact, the stupidity of the university professors was the doing of one particular clique of mathematically ignorant people. Their attitude 
was not natural or representative of the state of human knowledge. Galileo was not a brilliant maverick thinking outside the box. Rather, Galileo was merely doing what had, among mathematically competent people, been recognized as the natural and obviously right way to do science for thousands of years. So Galileo is not taking a qualitative leap beyond the limitations that had crippled all previous thinkers. Rather, he is merely reversing the obvious cardinal error of one particularly dumb philosophical movement that had happened to gain too much influence uh, at the time in certain university circles because uh, people were too ignorant. Uh, those people uh, in these university positions were too ignorant to recognize the evident superiority of the more mathematical and scientific schools of thoughts that had already uh, proven their worth in a large body of ancient works available to anybody who, who cared to read. We have said the Archimedes, the, the, the mechanical tradition, astronomy. There is a huge body of uh, exemplary scientific works from antiquity. So, therefore, in order to defend this misconceived idea that Galileo was this trailblazing innovator, uh, in order to maintain that narrative, one must ignore the large body of obvious uh, precedent for of what people call Galileo's view was actually the view of the Greeks, of the mathematically minded writers of the uh, you know, antiquity. And so that must be ignored, and instead you must project the foolish nonsense of medieval universities onto antiquity, onto the Greeks. And indeed historians have concocted a false narrative that does precisely this. Let me give you some typical quotes here. Uh, Greek technology and science were rigidly separated. This is an assertion by one uh, uh, historian of the modern scientific revolution. Here's another one. The Greek hand worker was considered inferior to the brain worker or contemplative thinker. So, despite the fact that the philosophers derived some of their conclusions as to how nature behaved from the work of the craftsmen, they rarely had experience of that work. What is more, they were seldom inclined to improve it and so were powerless to prior part its potential treasure of knowledge uh, that was to lead to the scientific revolution in the Renaissance. Some scholars have even provided a so-called cause for why the uh, ancients allegedly had these kinds of attitudes that separated theory from practice. Uh, here's a typical statement to that effect. The fundamental break upon further progress of science in antiquity was slave labor, which precluded any meaningful combination of theory and practice. So that is a standard statement from standard uh, historiography. But in fact, more specialized and more recent scholarship notes that uh, this is not uh, accurate. The recent Oxford Handbook of Engineering and Technology in the Classical World, for example, it is perfectly clear, states very explicitly, Many 20th century scholars hit upon snobbish contempt for manual labor as an explanation for the perceived blockage of technological innovation in the Greco-Roman world. The presence of slave labor was felt to be a related concomitant factor. But this now discredited interpretation should be rejected. We should put an end to the myth of a technological blockage in the classical cultures. Well, there you go. That's a quote from the... uh, experts on this matter. While the force narrative that I quoted earlier about, oh, the Greeks, they didn't understand the unity of theory and practice, those statements are put forth by scholars who focus on Galileo. They take it for granted that Galileo was the father of modern science, and then they are forced to postulate this nonsense about the Greeks, because, well, that's the only way they could make sense of the kind of retrofit a history of the earlier periods that is consistent with their claim that Galileo is the father of science. Uh, the only way to make a narrative fit this false assumption is to say that the Greeks must have been uh, limited in these respects. So uh, clearly these people who fall for that narrative, they have not uh, bothered to read any mathematical authors of uh, antiquity because this it's evident uh, that this narrative doesn't fit. Pappus, for instance, he clearly explains, an ancient author, ancient mathematical uh, author, states that uh, obviously mathematicians enthusiastically embrace practical and manual skills. Here's an explicit quote from Pappus about this. 
The science of mechanics has many important uses in practical life and is zealously studied by mathematicians. Mechanics can be divided into a theoretical and a manual part. The theoretical part is composed of geometry, arithmetic, astronomy and physics. The manual of working in metal, architecture, carpenting and painting and anything involving skill with the hands. So Pappus praised the interaction of geometry with practical fields or arts, as he calls them, at, uh, as being beneficial to both. Here's a, a quote from Pappus. Geometry is in no way injured, but is capable of giving content to many arts by being associated with them. And so far from being injured, it is obvious while itself advancing those arts is appropriately honored and adorned by them. These were no empty words, indeed. The Greeks had an extensive tradition of studying uh, machines, as, they, as it's called, so devices based on components like the lever, pulley, wheels, axles, uh, winches, wedges, screws, gear wheels, and, and uh, these kinds of things. So the primary purpose of those kinds of machines was that of uh, multiplying an effort to exert greater force than uh, can human or animal muscle power alone as ancient sources say. So these kinds of machines were used in construction, water lifting, mining, uh, processing agricultural produce, uh, warfare, etc. So uh, the mathematician and the engineering traditions were both uh, closely intertwined. And the Greeks, they also undertook large-scale uh, advanced engineering projects, like, for instance, digging a tunnel of more than a kilometer through a mountain. And this planning involved uh, quite sophisticated geometry to be able to, for the tunnel to be dug from both ends with the diggers meeting in the middle. So to have the, have the construction time, it's, that's a lot of digging to, to get an entire kilometer through the, through the mountain with uh, manual labor. So uh, it, the, the thing is supposed to have a constant slope uh, downwards because this was a water aqueduct and also, uh, they would have to meet in the middle of a mountain, not the easiest thing to guarantee. But with mathematical methods, this was done in, uh, in Greek antiquity. The tunnel is still there today. Uh, therefore, as, as one uh, uh, scholarly uh, source has concluded, while it is crucial to distinguish between theoretical mechanics and practitioner's knowledge, there is substantial evidence of a two-way interaction between them in antiquity. So that's exactly the kinds of examples that we have seen. And indeed, the mathematicians were very much involved with these things. The, the engineers and the mathematicians were the same people. There are many testimonies attributing, for instance, to Archimedes, various accomplishments in engineering, such as moving a ship single-handedly by means of pulleys, or destroying enemy ships uh, using machines, the, the ships of the Romans when they were attacking, and also... Uh, attributed to Archimedes is a screw for lifting water. Perhaps you have seen this device. And and so on. There are many of those kinds of uh, stories. Apollonius, he wrote an extremely advanced, uh, thorough treatise on conic sections. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of propositions is studiously abstract. It's, if there ever was such a thing as art for the sake of art, so to speak, absolutely pure mathematics, then that's that. The conic sections of Apollonius just extremely technical, extremely refined and sophisticated uh, you know working out the theory in all its generality in all its, uh, you know, its subtle uh, elaboration in every direction. So that's the conics of Apollonius but striking to know then that this is the very same Apollonius who, in fact, besides writing on, on this thing on conic sections, he produced a now lost work on a flute player driven by compressed air, which was released by valves uh, controlled by the operation of a water wheel. That is a mechanical flute player a statue that could play the flute in this self-playing uh, 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 contraption, you know. And uh, there is, interestingly, a, a title page for an Arabic manuscript that, that has uh, preserved the, this uh, a description of this flute uh, thing. 
the title page of the manuscript says, by Apollonius the Carpenter the Geometer. Isn't it beautiful? You know, this, this uh, cliche of Greek geometry is nothing but abstruse abstractions divorced from reality. It is a modern fiction. Uh, the sources tell a very different story. It's not for nothing that one of the most refined mathematicians of antiquity went by this moniker, the Carpenter. That's just tell you something about how committed to, to practical know-how that these people were. The Carpenter. That is the name for the most abstract mathematician of antiquity. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, however, as uh, Rousseau has observed in his excellent book, here's a quote, uh, Renaissance intellectuals were not in a position to understand the Hellenistic uh, scientific theories. However, like bright children whose lively curiosity set astir by a first visit to the library, they found in the manuscripts many uh, captivating topics, especially those that came with illustrations. The most famous intellectual attracted by all these novelties, so-called novelties, was Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo's futuristic technical drawings are not a scientific voyage into the future so much as a plunge into a distant past. Leonardo's drawings often show objects that could not have been built in his time because the relevant technology did not exist. This is not due to a special genius for defining the future, but to the mundane fact that behind those drawings, there were older drawings from a time when technology was far more advanced. That is the argument by uh, Rousseau. Personally, I suspect that he's right, and basically that would mean that the generation of Leonardo da Vinci and people like that, they would have had access to ancient manuscripts that are no longer available today. They sort of went to the library, they plundered it, they were not philologists, they didn't care about the preservation of these works, they just went there, took whatever uh, struck their uh, imagination and just uh, copied and used however they pleased without preserving the originals. So this is why you have, we have this distorted view, oh, Leonardo da Vinci, what a genius, what a... He came up with all, you know, helicopter and all this kind of stuff. No, no. Look, he he stole all of that from the Greeks who were vastly more advanced, way, way, way more sophisticated intellectual culture of, of the Hellenistic era than uh, the European Renaissance was, was miles behind in mathematical sophistication, in technological sophistication. And this is why plundering the Asian manuscripts for their uh, uh, treasures you know, was very attractive uh, to to these people like Leonardo, and they didn't really have the uh, the the patience to stop and uh, preserve all uh, the, that in original form. In any case, the false narrative of the mechanically ignorant, the anti-practical uh, Greek mathematicians has obscured. Uh, this fact it led to a, an exaggerated evaluation of Renaissance technology, like instruments for navigation, surveying, drawing, timekeeping, this kind of stuff. You see a lot of uh, practical mathematics on the rise. You, often nowadays, you you hear a lot about this. Oh, practical mathematics! It was a precursor of the scientific revolution, a very popular uh, idea among historians these days. For instance, uh, consider Jim Bennett, former director of the Museum of History of Science in in, in Oxford. Here's what he says, quote, Renaissance developments in practical mathematics predated the intellectual shifts in natural philosophy. Historians of the early modern reform of natural philosophy have failed to appreciate the significance of the prior success of the practical mathematical program, which must figure in an explanation of why the new dogma of the 17th century embraced mathematics, uh, mechanism, experiment and instrumentation. Well, that's his interpretation. That's Jim Bennett, who, who was the director of the Mr. Science Museum. So he was the one working, uh, you know, uh, curating those uh, uh, practical tools that were used by the uh, for navigation purposes, for astronomical purposes, etc. Those mechanical devices. That's his uh, speciality. So it's easy for him to say, "Ah, look, uh, these people did it before uh, Galileo, before Newton, and so to, we already had this." So that must have been the, the root of it then. Indeed, uh, Jim the Bennett, he proves at length that this practical, mathemat practical mathematics tradition, it had a lot to commend it. That's true. I do not uh, 
dispute that that is the case. However, he then casually asserts, with hardly any justification, that there was nothing comparable in Greek times. Well, this is uh, typical, isn't it, of much scholarship from, from, of this period. In fact, this is a deeply entrenched standard view. is that the Galilean revolution is taken for granted, and subsequent work is presented as emendations to it. So, so therefore, if you want to prove uh, the importance of uh, Renaissance uh, kind of pre-scientific revolution in practical mathematics, then you need to prove two things. First, you need to prove that those things that those people knew that who were working with these instruments and the, te the technical tradition, that they had uh, some key instances or elements of their way of working were relevant to the scientific revolution. And also, secondly, that those things were not present also long before, like uh, 1,500 years before in Greek antiquity, for instance. So it is a typical pattern to see historians who try to argue for the importance of this Renaissance practical mathematics tradition, they put all their efforts towards proving the first point and they completely gloss over the second one in a sentence or two, for instance. You can go to Jim Bennett's paper and see this for yourself. They can get away with this because the alleged shortcomings of the Greeks is supposedly common knowledge. You, I already showed you a long list of quotes, but people say this in standard sources, so we can just take that for granted. And whereas it is the first point, the one about that uh, these Renaissance people, they knew at least something, that's the part that uh, departs from, uh, from the standard narrative, you know, that the scientific revolution wasn't only Galileo, it was a little bit before with these practical people. This is the part that where they depart from the, uh, from the conventional interpretation. So it's unfortunate for the people making these arguments then that the standard narrative is in fact misconceived to begin with. So therefore, all of this more specialized research, although ostensibly departs from the standard narrative of the scientific revolution, actually it retains uh, the most fundamental errors of that narrative in the way that it, 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 the very way that it frames the argument and the, the, the evidence that it uses, because it still takes for granted that if somebody in the Renaissance did something Galileo-ish, then surely they must have been the true source of the scientific revolution. But actually, uh, that stuff was in Greek antiquity all along, but you know they retain the error of dismissing the Greek tradition, so they remain as uh, much in error as the uh, as the old way of attributing the scientific revolution to Galileo, in fact. So it is very much uh, correct to emphasize that the practical mathemat mathematical tradition stood for a much more fruitful and progressive approach to nature than that dominant among the philosophy professors of that time, or the university professors. It is a mistake, however, to believe that those professors represented the considered opinion of the best minds while the mathematical practitioners, the, the, the navigators, the, the, the practical astronomers, that those people were the kind of uh, oddball underdogs whose uh, pioneering success eventually proved uh, undeniable, a kind of surprise to everyone, the Cinderella story of these uh, everyday guys running around with a little abacus doing trade and stuff, and they oh, they had this secret knowledge, uh, secret key to, to knowledge that they overcame the establishment. No, that's not the right way to think about it. The mathematical practitioners stood for simple common sense. They did not stand for renegade iconoclasm or radical new ideas. They practiced the same common sense that their peers had done in antiquity, and they achieved much the same results. The Greeks had already done all of that stuff all over the place. The university professors, meanwhile, they should not be mistaken for a neutral representation of the state of human knowledge at that time. That is a huge mistake. Rather, these university professors, they formed one particular philosophical sect which retained the domination of the university, not because of the preeminence of its teachings or that everybody thought that's the, the only right way to think, but rather because of the very conservative appointment practices, the obsequiousness of academics. So that's my interpretation of the role of practical mathematics in the scientific revolution. This is for these reasons that we should not think of Galileo's celebration of the, the craftsmen, the mechanicians, 
as a uh, innovative step, which it was not. So let's turn to another issue then, a more philosophical one. Instrumentalism versus realism, a classic philosophical uh, a distinction. So the standard view is that the scientific revolution saw the replacement of predominantly instrumentalist attitudes to mathematical analysis with a more realist outlook. This is a quote. So what does that mean? Instrumentalism. It means the following. So I'm quoting uh, the definition of instrumentalism from Simplicius, the ancient commentator in Aristotle. Here's what he says. An explanation which conforms to the facts does not imply that the hypotheses are real and exist. Astronomers have been unable to establish in what sense exactly the consequences entailed by these arrangements are merely fictive and not real uh, at all. Uh, so they are satisfied to assert that it is possible by means of circular and uniform movements, always in the same direction, to save the apparent movements of the wandering stars. This is what how Simplicius puts it, to save the appearances, indeed, r not uh, necessarily by discovering the truth about it, but to come up with some account that fits the facts. So instrumentalism as opposed to realism, was supposedly the accepted philosophy of science among the Greeks, as, as the story goes, according to many historians. Here's what uh, Pierre Duhem had to say about it, for example, a very influential writer. Ancient Greek astronomers balked at the idea that the eccentrics and epicycles uh, are bodies really up there in the walls of the heavens. For the Greeks, they were simply geometrical fictions requisite to the subjection of celestial phenomena to calculation. If these calculations are in accord with the results of observations, if the hypotheses succeed in saving the phenomena, then the astronomer's problem is solved. An astronomer uh, who understands the true purpose of science, as defined by men like uh, Posidonius, Ptolemy, Proclus, and Simplicius, would not require the hypothesis supporting of his system to be true, that is, in conformity with things, for him it will be enough if the results of calculations agree with the results of observations, that is to say, if appearances are saved. So that's the opinion of uh, Pierre Duhem in the early 20th century. Plenty of modern historians agree as well. Here are some examples, I quote, The Greek geometry in formulating astronomical theories does not make any statements about physical nature at all. His theories are purely geometrical fictions. That means that to save the appearances became a purely mathematical task. It was an exercise in geometry, no more, but of course also no less. Galileo, by contrast, brought a radically new mode of realist mathematical nature knowledge. In other words, Galileo endorsed a view that was contrary to that of the Greeks, but was also much more creative it was a crippling restriction to hold that no theory about reality can be uh, in, in mathematical form. The Renaissance rejected this restriction, holding that it was worth worthwhile enterprise to search for mathematical theories, uh, which also, uh, by metaphysical uh, criteria, could be supposed real. The most eloquent and full defense of this process was given by Galileo. Hence, the scientific revolution owes much to the novel quality of realism that abstract mathematical mode of nature knowledge acquired in Galileo's hands. So all of those things are quotations from mainstream historical scholarships. I, of course, disagree with all of that stuff, as you might imagine. In reality, no mathematically competent Greek author ever advocated instrumentalism. The notion that the Greeks were instrumentalists relies exclusively on passages by philosophical commentators. The notion that Ptolemy, for example, the great astronomer, believed that uh, his planetary models were fictional combinations of circles which could never exist in celestial reality, as, as Pierre claimed, is demonstrably false, as a matter of fact. First of all, Ptolemy opens his big book, uh, the, the Almagest, with physical arguments for why the Earth is in the center of the universe. The blatantly realist justification for this aspect of his astronomical models was just 100% realism all the way through. The, it doesn't make any sense to give an instrumentalist uh, interpretation of that. That is to say that uh, he, the idea that he only made up his models to, well, well, the calculations work, I can tell you where the star is going to be, but I don't pretend to know anything about the heavens. That uh, is obviously not Ptolemy's mindset, because why then would he give physical explanations of why 
the earth is the center of the universe. It doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, Ptolemy also gives a detailed discussion of the order and distances of the planets. And this discussion obviously assumes that the planetary models, or epicycles and everything, are indeed physically real. Uh, here's what he says. The distance of the planets may be determined without difficulty from the nesting of the spheres, where the least distance of a sphere is considered equal to the greatest distance of the sphere below it. So that is to say, according to Ptolemy's epicyclic uh, planetary model, each planet is sways back and forth between uh, nearest and further distance from the Earth because it's a circle on a circle. So the the smaller circle, uh, you know, determines the, uh, the the nearest and furthest uh, deviation from the main uh, circumference of the main circle. That's the epicycle. So uh, if you think in those kinds of terms and you still want the the universe to be the layers of an onion, so to speak, then the, the, each onion has to be uh, just thick enough to contain the, the epicycle. And uh, indeed, Ptolemy then assumes that there is no space between the greatest and least distances of, of adjacent spheres. As he says, this is most plausible, for it is not conceivable that there be in nature a vacuum or any meaningless and useless thing. Those are Ptolemy's words. Clearly, this is based on taking the planetary models to be very real indeed. Not at all mathematical fictions that are just invented for calculations. It just gives you the numerical output. No, no, no. He thought they are really out there. They're really The heaven really is made up of these physical uh, layers. And their, their thickness are determined by the, the radius of the epicycle, etc., Indeed, uh, Ptolemy was not an exception, you know, in his realism. His colleague uh, uh, Geminos was a thoughtful realist, as the translator of his uh, surviving astronomical work uh, have observed. Hipparchus, as well, the great astronomer of, of the Hellenistic era, he evidently chose planetary models on realist grounds as well. His works are lost, unfortunately, but we know that... Uh, he proved the mathematical equivalence of epicyclic and equant motion. Uh, that is to say, he showed that two geometrical models of planetary motion are observationally equivalent. They lead to the exact same visual impressions as seen from the Earth. And yet they are brought about by very different mechanisms. So how should one choose between these two models in, in that case? If Hipparchus had been an instrumentalist, he wouldn't care one way or the other. You could pick whichever was more mathematically convenient. As far as instrumentalism is concerned, all that matters is to account for the uh, the appearances, and since these two models have the same appearances, there is no other uh, grounds on which one could choose one which is better than the other. Uh, however, that's not what uh, Hipparchus did. If, if indeed, if from a realist point of view, you would want to know which model could more plausibly correspond to actual physical reality. And uh, let what did Hipparchus do? Well, here's what uh, Theon says, the surviving uh, a source on this. Hipparchus, convinced that he, this is how the phenomena are brought about, adopted the epicyclic hypothesis as his own and says that it is likely that all the heavenly bodies are uniformly placed with respect to the center of the world and that they are united to in it in a similar way. So the, those properties would not hold in the uh, equant uh, conception of planetary motion. So Hipparchus he decided between his two equivalent models based on physical plausibility. He thought it's more likely that the universe is made up with these properties about the common center, about uh, the way uh, the, the motion is linked to the other and so on. Uh, so these are physical plausibility arguments, clearly realist arguments. So it is evident that the Greek uh, astronomical tradition is realist. You can't really argue with it if you read the sources. But historians, uh, you know, manage to uh, talk their way around it somehow. And they have also brought up other so-called evidence that the Greeks, as they say, were instrumentalists. And one thing they point to is the alleged compartmentalization of Greek science. And let me quote here a modern historian who expresses this. Phenomena such as 
consonants in music, light, planetary trajectories, and the states of equilibrium in statics or hydrostatics are investigated separately in Greek science. There is no search for interconnections, let alone an overarching unity. So this is how one uh, historian tries to uh, tries to uh, insinuate that it was in the time of Galileo that these things were truly unified. You have one science to rule them all, so to speak, whereas the Greeks, they just had these uh, little bits and pieces. So, and this kind of attitude, this... Uh, uh, segmentation of, of science that would indeed make sense if mathematical science was just instrumental uh, computational tools with no genuine anchoring in uh, physical reality however the only problem of course is that the claim is false Greek science is in fact full of interconnections uh, just as one would expect if they were committed realists Ptolemy uses uh, mechanics to justify geocentrism as we've already said Archimedean hydrostatics explains the shape of planets as a, a consequence of the pull towards the center. Uh, it casts lights on the Earth's uh, geological past. It was formed in a fluid state, maybe. And so that stuff is explicit in, in Greek sources as well. Ptolemy applies consonants, which is, that is to say, musical theory, the chords and stuff, and harmonious relationships between frequencies. Ptolemy applies that stuff to the human soul, the ecliptic, the zodiac, the fixed stars, the planets, and so this is what he says in his big book uh, on astrology, Tetrabiblos. Uh, Ptolemy also uh, applied the law of refraction of optics to atmospheric refraction. It knows the importance of this for astronomical observation that the light rays aren't coming in, you know, straight from the from the star to the eye because they are refracted through when it passes through the atmosphere. So this is again a link between optics and astronomy. So uh, in Galileo's time, the same pattern prevails, of course. Mathematically competent people are indeed uh, uh, unabashed realists. Philosophers and theologians are the ones who find instrumentalism uh, very appealing for reasons that have nothing to do with science. Copernicus's own book, in fact, uh, is unequivocally realist, of course, if you read the book, there are no two ways about it. Obviously, Copernicus believed that this was the actual, uh, physically, how the planetary system worked. You know, it's not just the mathematical theory, it's the real thing. Clearly, Copernicus believed it, just as all the other mathematical astronomers always had. However, spineless uh, philosophers, theologians, they could not accept this. So one of them even resorted to a very ugly trick, namely inserting an unsigned uh, foreword into the book without Copernicus' authorization. Indeed, it was printed you know, as if it had been uh, an intentional part of the work. Uh, easily, many people would have, could have easily gotten the impression that it was by Copernicus himself, because if it just says foreword and it doesn't, it's not signed. You know? So this foreword espoused instrumentalism. Here's what it says, quote, It is the job of the astronomer to use painstaking and squirrel observation in gathering together the history of the celestial movements, and then, since he cannot, by any line of reasoning, reach the true causes of these moments, to think up or construct whatever causes or hypotheses he pleases, such that, by the assumption of these causes, those same movements can be calculated from the principles of geometry uh, for the past and for the future too. It is not necessary that these hypotheses should be true, it is enough if they provide a calculus which fits the observations. So this is what the forward claims. This forward, if it was left unsigned, it made it very easy to assume that it was written by Copernicus himself, perhaps. And But this, of course, fooled no one who actually read the book full of blatant realism. That's uh, obvious enough. Uh, Gitano Bruno, for example, thought that, uh, in his words, there can be no question that Copernicus believed... Uh, in this motion of the earth. And therefore he concluded that the timid foreword saying, oh, you know, you know, astronomer never really knows and stuff. He assumed that that foreword must have been written by, in, here, here are his words, by I know not what ignorant and presumptuous ass. <laughs> it's funny. So uh, that's Giordano Bruno, uh, an early uh, reader of Copernicus. And other mathematically competent readers, they uh, felt the same, no doubt. But then again, 
the mathematically incompetent people, who the instrumentalist forward was uh, designed to appease, they would not have read the book uh, anyway, because they couldn't read mathematics. So maybe the forward served its purpose. In medieval and uh, Renaissance philosophical texts, it is not hard to find many assertions to the effect that real astronomy is not existent. What passes for astronomy is merely something suitable for computing the entries in astronomical almanacs, rather than a description of physical reality. There were many instrumentalists at that time, absolutely. However, the challenge is to find among them even one single serious mathematical astronomer. These people, the instrumentalists, who spoke at length about how astronomy doesn't actually describe the reality, and so all of them were theologians and philosophers. Tons of them, none of them were mathematicians, however. All historians nowadays recognize that Copernicus clearly believed in the physical reality of his astronomical system. However, the, their inference that he thus broke down the traditional disciplinary boundary between astronomy, a branch of mixed mathematics, and physics as a natural philosophy, that is an inference that they draw, I'm quoting now from, from his story. This c conclusion is uh, something I reject, you know, that just because Copernicus was a realist, that much is true, but that doesn't mean that he broke down the hegemony that lasted forever. It... it uh, this idea that instrumentalism was the traditional view, that is correct only in a very limited sense. It was the traditional view among the one particular sect of Aristotelians. The, the, that sect of, of philosophy had occupied the universities. However, outside of this narrow clique, it had no credibility or standing whatsoever. Among mathematicians, Copernicus' view was in fact a traditional one. This was what mathematicians had always believed for obvious reasons, and they never had any reason to believe otherwise. And all mathematically competent people continued in the same vein, also long before Galileo entered the scene. Already in the 16th century, Tycho, uh, Rothman, Meslin, and even uh, Ursus openly devoted a wide range of physical arguments uh, in uh, their debates about the uh, rival world systems. Kepler uh, put the matter very clearly. One who predicts as accurately as possible the movements and position of the stars performs the task of the astronomer as well. But one who, in addition to this, also employs the true opinions about the form of the universe performs it better and is held worthy of greater praise. The former, indeed, draws conclusions that are true as far as what is observed is concerned. But the latter not only does justice in his conclusions what is seen, but it also draws conclusions embracing the inmost form of nature. That's Kepler. As Kepler notes, this was all obvious and well known and accepted since antiquity. For, as Kepler says, to predict the motions of the planets, Ptolemy did not have to consider the order of the planetary spheres, and yet he carefully did so, diligently. Well, very true. Kepler is absolutely correct. So, in conclusion... Mathematicians were always realists. Galilee had nothing new to contribute about this, so therefore we have refuted that as well as one of the possible Galilean innovations that caused the scientific revolution. Here's another big theme in uh, the scientific uh, revolution, the mechanical philosophy. Some say that the mechanization of the world picture was a defining ingredient of the transition from Asian to classical science, paradigm conception of the, at the heart of the new science, or that of the world as a machine, a clockwork universe. Where everything is caused by bodies pushing one another according to basic mechanical laws, as opposed to a world governed by theological purpose, of, of teleology, divine will, intervention, anthropomorphized desires and sympathies uh, ascribed to physical objects or, or other uh, supernatural forces, stuff like that. That's the old view, you know. And uh, the mechanical philosophy just sweeps away all of that stuff, all of those uh, mystical kinds of things, and it replaces it with just mechanical, uh, one thing pushes another, there are springs and there are collisions, and the, the on, only those kinds of things, are, that's all you need to explain what, this is the mechanical philosophy. So Galileo was supposedly a pioneer then, in how he always stuck with the right side in, in this divide, rejecting the occult and favoring the mechanical. So here is one historian, for example, arguing for this. 
Quote, Galileo possessed in a high degree one special faculty, that is the faculty of thinking correctly about physical problems as such, and not confusing them with either mathematical or philosophical problems. It is a faculty rare enough uh, still, but much more frequently encountered today than it was in Galileo's time, if only because nowadays we all cope with mechanical devices from childhood on. So that's uh, one, that's how one historian has claimed it. Even though it seems so obvious to us, you have this uh, kind of story about why it wasn't obvious at the time, because now we are much more accustomed to mechanical devices. So, uh, well, okay, uh, here's one objection to that, namely that it was Galileo's special faculty for thinking uh, only mechanically. That's exactly what led him to reject, as occult, the correct explanations of the tides, as we had discussed before and propose his own completely embarrassing non-starter of a tidal theory, which is based on an analogy with uh, mechanical devices indeed. So that was already a case where he obviously, this uh, mechanical way of thinking led him into error. But okay, let's put that aside. More generally, uh, there is nothing modern about the mechanical philosophy. In fact, we all cope with mechanical devices from childhood on, the quote says, as if that explains why we think it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious by when Galileo discovered it. You know? However, the Greeks did so too. The Greeks built automata, entirely mechanical uh, puppet theaters, self-opening temple doors, coin-operated holy water dispensers, and so on. All of these things are explicit in the sources. We already spoke about Apollonius building a mechanical flute player statue that played the flute uh, autonomously, for example. So, Pappus, uh, for example, says that the science of mechanics has many applications of practical utility, including machines for lifting weights, warfare machines that catapults, uh, water lifting machines for uh, irrigation, and marvelous devices such as using ropes and cables to simulate the motions of living things. These kinds of things were all over the place in Greek antiquity. So, clearly, then, ancient Greek uh, mechanics offered uh, working artifacts complex enough to suggest that organisms or the cosmos as a whole, or we ourselves even, living uh, beings, might work like that, you know, in a mechanical way. We might also be made up of uh, little cogwheels and stuff, essentially. So we read in ancient sources, indeed, that the universe is like a single mechanism governed by simple and deterministic laws that ultimately lead to all the varieties of tragic and comedic and other interactions of human affairs. It is all just a consequence of so many gears and levers pushing each other uh, mechanistically. This line of reasoning soon led to a secularization of science bit by bit. Zeus was relieved of his thunderbolt duty, Poseidon of earthquakes, Apollo of epidemic disease, Hera of births, and the rest of the pantheon of God were pensioned off in a similar manner, as one historian has poetically observed. So mechanical explanations were indeed widespread in Greek science. The Aristotelian mechanics uh, work uh, uses the, the law of the lever to explain, for example, why rowers who are in the middle of a ship move the ship the most with the, the, when they're pulling the oars. Or, and it also uses the lever again to explain how it is that the dentist extracts a, a teeth more easily by a tooth extractor, a kind of forceps, than with uh, the bare hand only. So Greek scientists explained uh, perfectly clearly as well that sound is a wave of air in motion, completely explicit in Greek sources. It, this is comparable to the rings forming on a pond when you throw a, a stone into it, for example. That's how, that's how sound works, the Greeks observed. Uh, atomism it's, was obviously widely espoused uh, conception of the world in Greek antiquity plenty of sources about atomism and that is obviously uh, in, in its very essence a plan to make material principles the basis of all uh, reality that's what atomism uh, really means it's just the uh, complex things arise from simple uh, small uh, bodies just bumping into one another and ultimately uh, gives rise to complex uh, phenomena, everything we see around us. Greek astronomy, we know that it went hand in hand with mechanical uh, planetaria. 
that directly reproduce the scale model of uh, planetary motions. Not just like toy models that are like something you show the kids. In fact, were, these things were complex, scientifically ambitious instruments. They could generate all the heavenly motions mechanically from one single generated motion. You would t- turn a crank, so to speak, and it pushes. You know, it's a very elaborate gear mechanism that accounts for all the uh, motions of all the planets and the moon and all a very elaborate uh, system. Those kinds of machines were built in Greek antiquity. Archimedes built planetarium. These are facts that are stated in the sources. We don't have those devices uh, left anymore. Of course, they have been lost to time. Even biology, biological phenomena may be of the same nature. That, of course, is a conclusion that readily suggests itself in this context. It was eagerly pursued by the Greeks. Here, let's quote, for instance, Galen, the ancient physician, very famous. Here's what he says. Just as people who imitate the revolutions of the wandering stars by means of certain instruments, they instill a principle of motion in them and then they go away while the devices operate just as if the craftsman was there and overseeing them and everything. I think in the same way, each of the parts of the body operates by some succession and reception of motion from the first principle to every part, meaning no overseer. So that's uh, Galen obviously drawing on these very elaborate autonomous kinds of machines that operate on themselves based on springs or dropping water or whatever, some long-lasting uh, process that surprises the mechanical uh, drive to the system. So also biological things could work uh, on the same model. So evidently this... Uh, the mechanical uh, practice of, of, of automata, of machines that operated in elaborate ways, like Apollonius machine of the self uh, playing uh, flute uh, statue, those kinds of things were obviously very influential in uh, providing a model for how to think about scientific uh, questions generally, just as Galen's uh, passage here suggests. And Ancient uh, medical research put this vision into practice. The use of what we would call uh, mechanical ideas to explain organic processes, like for instance digestion or other uh, physiological functions, is indeed the most prominent feature of the work of Erasitratus in medicine, who also tested these ideas uh, with experiments. This is all in the sources. So, in conclusion, the world did not need Galileo to tell them about the mechanical philosophy. It had been widely regarded as common sense already in antiquity. There is ample evidence for that. So, here's my uh, overall conclusion of all of this stuff. Not just uh, the mechanical philosophy one, but all the different causes that allegedly Galileo contributed. The scientific revolution uh, did not come about by any innovative or groundbreaking insights of Galileo of any kind. It came about simply by listening to what the mathematicians have been saying for thousands of years. Thank you.